1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, I'm so glad that you can join us today as we kick off our new Term 4 series in 1 John. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Let me pray for us now as we come to God's Word that we might uh, respond rightly to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word. We thank you that it's living and active, that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts that's sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, we pray, knowing that nothing is hidden from your sight, that everything is laid bare before you, that you might uh, challenge us afresh this morning, that you might comfort us too where needed as we start to look at this letter, which is on the one hand reassuring, uh, but on the other uh, deeply challenging for us. Uh, Please be at work in us by your Spirit, This day we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, secession is the act of withdrawing from an organization or especially a political entity. And there are literally hundreds of political examples of secession or breakaway micro-nations around the world today where groups of people have left their former nation. Now, closer to home here, secession movements have surfaced several times in Western Australia. Perhaps the most interesting is the Principality of Hutt River 
It had claimed to be an independent sovereign state since 1970, but it was dissolved on the 3rd of August this year. Maybe you saw it uh, a couple of months ago when it was on the news, where it was wound up by Prince Graham amidst disputes with the Australian Taxation Office, which was demanding that the principality pay millions in unpaid back taxes across its 50-year history. Now, it was never formally acknowledged by the Commonwealth of Australia, or anyone else for that matter. It's just a large farming property, about 517 kilometres north of Perth. It was founded by Leonard George Cassley in response to a dispute with the WA government over wheat quotas. He claimed independence to avoid their rules, and he styled himself as Royal Highness Prince Leonard of Hutt. Now, the Australian government has never taken any action. It just viewed it as nothing more than a private enterprise. But despite that, the principality has released a number of its own stamps, has its own currency, it produces passports. Prince Leonard has even made his own laws and had his own mail system. He even has a gift shop as tourists visit. You just got to love it. However, although the larrikin Australian in us thinks that all of that is funny, it's quite a serious thing to leave your prior group in some context. You know, if a group of believers go out from a church and leave because they want to redefine Jesus, you've got a major issue that needs to be addressed, particularly if those who have left the church are seeking to influence others, uh, con causing confusion. You see, such is the backdrop to the letter of 1 John. In 1 John 2 verses 19 and 26, we read, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so the author John found it necessary to bolster the assurance of the Christians who had become confused. Now the purpose of the letter is summarized right at the end of it in 1 John 5.13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The false teachers were wolves in sheep's clothing, but John's readers from this church that he had planted were the real deal, the genuine Christians who had eternal life. But that does beg the question, you know, what will genuine Christians be marked by? That's the question that I want us to consider today from our passage. What will genuine Christians be marked by? Now, the first answer to that question is this. A right understanding of Jesus based on the eyewitness accounts. A right understanding of Jesus based on the eyewitness accounts. So notice again what John writes in the opening two verses. 1 John verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Well, we see firstly in these verses that John's teaching was based on eyewitness testimony. 
as we've noted, uh, John is trying to reassure his readers that they are holding to the truth. And so here he seeks to achieve that by strengthening the reader's commitment to what they already know. They need to hold to his teaching or proclamation about the word of life, which is a reference to Jesus here. And they're to do this because John is an eyewitness of Christ's life. Now the phrase, from the beginning, in verse 1, is very reminiscent of the opening to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. But notice that in both introductions, Jesus is referred to as the word, or here in 1 John, the word of life. He is the word in flesh, God the Son, walking among us. Now in verse 2, the phrase eternal life also refers to Jesus, who was with the Father before he took on flesh and came to earth. He is the one in whom eternal life is found, which is why Jesus offers eternal life to all those who put their trust in him, because he has it to give. And lastly, in verses 3 and 4, this proclamation is to ensure true fellowship. Notice again what John writes. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. And so the reason for proclaiming what he had seen and heard was that the church may have continued fellowship with John. You know, it's the alternative to having fellowship with the breakaway group, the false teachers. And here in this context, fellowship means more than just a personal relationship with John. It's also a partnership with him in the work of proclaiming Jesus. See, Christian fellowship here springs from our fellowship with God the Father through a right understanding of Jesus Christ the Son. So those who broke away claimed to have fellowship with God the Father, but they had rejected the biblical Jesus who took on real flesh and yet who was also the eternal Son of God, both fully God and fully man. And in verse 4, this introduction of the letter concludes with John's reason for writing as he does, which seems a little odd as he talks about bringing his joy to himself, bringing it to a state of completion completion but it's because he feels responsible for his fellow believers and his joy can't be complete if he fears that they're in danger of turning from the truth now as we apply this first point to ourselves uh, we need to grasp that we cannot be listening to those who reject the authority of scriptures written down by the eyewitness apostles and we can't be accepting those who reject that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, a few years ago, uh, I spoke with a middle-aged uh, couple who knocked on my door, uh, who were very polite as I engaged them in conversation for about 15 minutes or so, um, all about eternal life and the Trinity. Now, they were Jehovah's Witnesses, or JWs for short. And for all their talk of loving the Bible, you know, they interpret the Bible according to what an elite group of their leaders say in America who publish their Watchtower magazine. 
They only believe the Bible in so much as it conforms to the teaching of this higher authority. They have rejected the apostolic gospel in favor of their own interpretation. And so we're not to listen to them and to those who reject the joint humanity and divinity of Jesus. Whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or the Christadelphians or the Church of Scientology, all of these groups deny the full divinity of Jesus. And so they're all confusing groups, dangerous groups, because they present themselves largely as Christians and look for common ground with us. But you can't own the name of Christ and then deny who he says he is in the pages of Scripture. We must highlight the differences, because once a person denies the Bible's authority or denies Jesus, there is no true fellowship. And we don't help them or ourselves by pretending otherwise. I remember having an hour-long conversation with a young JW some years ago when I was living in Chatswood. It was a very cold winter's day. As we stood there at the door, I told him he was part of a cult, that his beliefs denied the Bible, that his group had only existed since 1876, but that their false beliefs had been held in one form or another since the time of Christ. Now, it was a hard conversation i tried to do it politely and in a way that might cause him to reconsider his views i'm sure i could have done better but anything else is not truthful and it's not truly loving that brings us to a second answer to our question of what is a genuine christian marked by secondly a right attitude towards sin a right attitude towards sin so notice again what the Apostle John writes in verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, the description here of God being light is contrasted with the equally strong truth that there is no darkness in God. Now, that last phrase in verse 5 could be literally translated, and darkness in him? No, not any at all. You know, the two are utterly incompatible. And a light is not only a frequent symbol of God's presence in the Bible, but also of his moral perfection. God is perfectly righteous, flawless in his holiness. And so light exposes what the darkness would hide. Now the implications of this for us are spelt out in verses 6 to 10, as John deals with three false attitudes towards sin that all start with the phrase, if we claim. So firstly, notice in verse 6. We cannot claim to know God or to have fellowship with him if we walk in darkness. See, such a claim would be false. Now, the idea of walking in this context indicates a persistent movement in a particular direction. We might call it a lifestyle, a settled pattern. You know, the proof of a genuine Christian who claims to know God is a holy life matching it. There's no possibility of compromising. 
of trying to have one foot, as it were, walking in the light of God and the other remaining in the darkness of the world. You know, a person who persists in sin cannot be in fellowship with God, John is saying. These two states are mutually exclusive. It's like trying to have one foot in a boat and the other foot on the riverbank. It cannot work. You know, the famous American author and writer, uh, Jerry Bridges, said, One day as I was reading 1 John, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of John's. He was saying, in effect, make it your aim not to sin. And as I thought about it, Bridges wrote, I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. Can you imagine, he says, a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? We're in a spiritual battle, you see, as we face our sin. Well, secondly, in verse 8, we cannot claim with regard to sin that we don't have a sinful nature. Or we're simply deceiving ourselves, John says, and the truth is not in us. And nobody wants to be self-deluded, uh, to believe something about ourselves that's just not true. John says that's what we are if we think that we are not a sinner. So not only do we need to see persistent sinners incompatible with a claim to know God, secondly, we also need to acknowledge that we are fallen creatures, to grasp that we all by nature are sinners because we fall short of God's perfect standards. And to claim otherwise is not simply a lie, but it's to prove that we don't have any fellowship with God. We don't know God, John says. Now, this would include a person claiming you know, that they once had the sinful nature, but they've completely overcome it now, so that they have reached a higher plane you know, of sinless perfection. There's a story along those lines uh, regarding the famous Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon. Um, he was confronted by a man who claimed to be without sin, to have reached a, a new level so that he, he no longer sinned. He'd overcome his sinful nature. And intrigued, Spurgeon invited him home to his place for dinner. And during the dinner, Spurgeon picked up his glass of water and threw it in the man's face. Understandably, the visitor was highly indignant and expressed himself very forcefully through his evident anger. And Spurgeon replied, Ah, I see the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. Well, thirdly, in verse 10, another false claim. We cannot claim to have not sinned or we would be calling God a liar. In verse 8, the claim was, I am not a sinner. I don't have a sinful nature. Here in verse 10, it's more particularly, I haven't sinned. I've never spoken the wrong thing. I've never acted improperly. We've moved from the inward principle of the sinful nature to the outward symptoms that confirm our disease. And to deny any outward sinful actions or words is to not have God's word in us at all, says John. Now, perhaps having heard all of this, um, you're thinking, wow, you know, the standard is so high, perhaps this is causing you to lack assurance of your salvation rather than be reassured, as John says he is writing for us. But see, we need to grasp here that falling into sin is not our biggest problem. It's how we respond to that failure. 
You see, this side of heaven, we're going to constantly fall short of God's standard. We will continue to sin. The question is whether we will fall into the trap of ignoring or denying our sin or whether we will confess it. And this is why verse 9 is just so wonderful. The Apostle John acknowledges that believers are going to continue to struggle with sin. What God wants from us at that moment is a contrite heart. He can forgive us if we will admit our brokenness. This is true repentance. And it's hard for us because it's humbling. Look at the precious words of verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to acknowledge our continued need of the cleansing work of Christ through repentant prayer. And we need to be assured that when we do so, God will remove our sins. He will completely purify us. Now, if we ignore sin in our life and do not ask for this pardon, then we'll remain stunted as a Christian, unable to grow in godliness as God intended. But if we will confess our sin, he will forgive us again and again. You see, with God, there is always space for grace, his undeserved favor to us. That brings us to a final answer to what marks a genuine Christian. Thirdly, a right understanding of Christ's payment for sin. A right understanding of Christ's payment for sin. Notice the final two verses in our passage. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, here we see the grounds of God extending forgiveness to those who repent in verse 9. And it's Christ's finished work on the cross that allows us to be purified. This is something that John had already alluded to in passing in verse 7 of chapter 1, but he explains it further here. We have a saviour who has turned away God's rightful anger against sin. This is the meaning of the Greek word helasmos, which is translated atoning sacrifice or propitiation in verse 2. See, Jesus died as our substitute and his blood shed for us allows God's anger and just punishment not to fall on us, to be turned away from us, to fall on his son. The justice of God was satisfied And he can therefore forgive us our debt because it's been met by Jesus. Jesus died in our place. Anna Sophia Tura was one of 21 children born in northern Finland. Uh, Her half-sister Maria was married and living in Ohio by the time she was 18. And after a visit from her sister and her husband, John, they enticed Anna to come to America. Well, when she boarded the Titanic in Southampton, England, she was 18 years old, and late on that fateful Sunday night, April 14, 1912, she felt a shudder and a shake. And soon afterward, her roommates 
brother knocked on the door and told them that something was wrong. They should put on their warm clothing and their life jackets and make their way up. And so their little group dressed, headed up to the upper decks. And a sailor eventually picked Anna up and put her into the second last lifeboat to be launched. In fact, it seemed that she had taken his place because he remained on the ship while she was the last one to get on that boat. She heard loud explosions as the light went out and the Titanic went under in the minutes that followed. And every year on the anniversary, she would sit her children down to tell them the story again. And she was just so thankful that God had saved her through a sailor whose seat she was given. She would always say to them, I just can't understand why God would save a poor Finnish girl like me. But you see, even greater is our eternal salvation in Christ, who gave his life that we might live, who laid it down so that we could have true forgiveness and full fellowship with God the Father. More than that, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 2 that our fellowship with God includes Jesus being our advocate at his right hand. If we know his payment, he speaks on our behalf in our defense. And so our assurance of forgiveness and ongoing growth is found in Christ's perfection. And it's not the vain hope of our perfection in this life that proves our genuineness, nor ignoring or denying our sin or redefining it. Now, I think John Newton, the converted slave trader who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace, put it best when he said, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was, and it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. What are the marks of a genuine Christian? Well, it's a right understanding of Jesus, that he is fully God, fully man, a right attitude towards sin, and a right understanding of Christ's payment for that sin. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you call us, if we have come to trust in your Son Jesus, to a life of holiness, of living in a way that reflects that you are our Master, we thank you that you have made allowance for our fallen nature, that there is ongoing forgiveness of sin as we come before you confessing our need lord we thank you that we can be completely reassured because the price has been paid by our wonderful savior the lord jesus lord help us to see that he is both fully god and fully man the one who atoned for our sin and therefore stands as our advocate as we strive to grow in godliness day by day. Help us to see that this is what should mark us out as someone who is seeking to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. And we pray this in his name. Amen.